You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Trita. How are you? I'm doing okay. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You're Trita Parsi of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. And thanks for taking the time, because I know uh, when Iran is in the news, you're very much in demand and you're doing uh, a lot of media. I'm happy that we're, we're part of the media you're doing. Um, so right now, uh, talks are going on that are aimed at restoring the uh, Iran nuclear deal, which was forged under President Obama, abandoned under President Trump. Uh, I haven't heard many people who are optimistic about the prospects of these talks. Uh, technically, the U.S. is not involved for reasons we can get into. It's between uh, uh, Europe, basically, and and Iran. Uh, but but uh, the U.S. is is in effect a player, if by proxy. Uh, there are a lot of concerns about what might happen if if the talks fail, as many people think is likely. Um, uh, things including war could happen. Things including war involving the U.S. could happen. Before we get into all that and what the prospects are for the talks and, and, and the consequences of failure, I want to talk, I want to go back in time a little and, and kind of get people up to speed and talk not just about the original Iran deal, which I guess was forged in 2015 um, or signed in 2015, but even before that. So I remember back maybe 10 years ago, 12 years ago, uh, Israel was making a lot of rumblings about like attacking Iran if we didn't get the uh, Iranian nuclear program under control. Iran said uh, it's a it's a civilian program for energy. Uh, Israel said we don't believe you. I think there is actually evidence that about 20 years ago, Iran did have a nuclear weapons program per se. But I think there's not evidence that since uh, 2003 or so, uh, that was the, ca the the case, but in but in any event, can you um and it, I should say it was in that context concerns about actual war that I think uh, President Obama really kind of uh, redoubled his his efforts to to get a deal done. He did. We'll talk about that deal, but first let's let's go back to that the the the, the, the prelude I'm talking about back ten years ago, even twenty. Do you want to kind of add anything to what I've said? Correct anything I've said? Set the stage. Uh, I can just add that, you know, since the mid-1990s, the Israelis were the ones who first started ringing the alarm bell about the Iranian nuclear program. Some of it is quite comical. You know, back in the mid-1990s, the Israelis were saying that Iran is two to three years away from the bomb. Time passed, but they were always two to three years away from the bomb. And it's, it's absolutely evident now that those statements were completely non-factual. The Israelis walked a fine balancing act back then, because on the one hand, they wanted to sound the alarms. They wanted to make this an international issue, but they also wanted to avoid it being seen just as a concern of the United States. The more they were on the forefront, the more it looked as if it was just an Israeli uh, concern. But if they weren't on the forefront, they thought that the rest of the world actually wouldn't take it seriously, perhaps because back then there really wasn't uh, a, a, a reason to be as concerned as it was later on. You mentioned that there was a nuclear weapons program before 2003. I think the most accurate statement is probably to say that there were 
activities that the Iranians were engaged in before them that were not compatible with a peaceful program, experimentations, et cetera, that would indicate that they perhaps had a plan of uh, creating a weapons program. And there was, am I right that there was for a time uh, an enrichment plan or something that they weren't telling the world about that was in uh, a particularly secure underground location or something? So so there is a a Fordo um, uh, facility uh, and there is the Natanz facility. Uh, The Fordo facility, the Iranians revealed in 2009, the U.S. intelligence knew about it for several years. Uh, the Iranians claimed that they were in, 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 in compliance with the IEA because they only have to notify the IEA 180 d- days before they actually start enriching. The uh, U.S. interpretation is that it's 180 days before they break ground. There's and been some disagreements the, on that. If I, can interrupt, if I can interrupt just one more time, IAEA is the International Atomic Energy Agency. And, and the context of this is that... Uh, Iran is part of the nuclear non-proliferation treaty. So they they have agreed not to create weapons. Israel is not, and Israel has nuclear weapons. Exactly. Uh, Israel has nuclear weapons. Everyone knows it. The United States knows it. The United States plays along with the idea of not talking about Israeli nukes. Um, and, and they're, but as you correctly said, they're not part of the non-proliferation treaty. Okay. There's also the Natanz facility, which is an above-ground facility. The media is um, repeating the idea that this was actually revealed by the Iranian uh, terrorist organization, the Mujahideen Akhal. Um, there's much to indicate that actually the IA knew about the facility. It's above ground. Um, uh, it had been indicated, notified about it. And, and the information that was revealed by the MEK came from the Israelis. The Israelis actually first went to the son of the Shah, hoping that he would be able to break the news of it. But... Uh, for reasons that I don't know, he declined and they instead went to the Mujahideen Akhal to reveal it. So back then you had this, you know, the beginning of this crisis starting to brew, but it's not until the Bush administration comes in, talks about axes of evil, um, takes out Afghanistan, takes out the Iraq, that we start to actually see that there is a significant risk of war. And back then, you remember, there was a lot of talk that, you know, we can't make a deal with Iran, we can't talk to them, they're not irrational, they may have a secret program, so what good is a negotiation? Well, part of the reason the Bush administration was saying they may have a secret program is because they knew that they had a facility that they were building in the mountains that had not been revealed yet and wasn't revealed until 2009. Okay, so uh, so we're at 2009 or so, and there are all these rumblings. I remember uh, Jeffrey Goldberg wrote a cover story for The Atlantic, actually predicting that Iran would, that Israel would strike Iran within a year, say, I, saying I think there was a better than 50% chance. There are people who have suggested that, you know, he was basically a, a tool of Israel at, at that point. I mean, unwitting, I don't mean he was, he was conspiring with them, but but that I would, go, I would actually get... disagree a little bit. Uh, you know, it was stunning how much Jeffrey Goldberg was just putting out uh, the line that Netanyahu wanted to in that Atlantic article, because we know now, we knew then that there were a tremendous amount of voices in the Israeli security establishment who by no means were friends of Iran or soft on Iran, but who found them fundamentally disagreed with the approach that Netanyahu and a few others in the Israeli government were pursuing. Uh, and also fundamentally disagreed that Israel actually had an ability to take military action, that it would serve Israeli interests. None of those voices, remarkably, were included in his piece, despite the fact that he said that he spent quite some time with security officials and spoke to quite a few of them. Okay. So that was, uh, it was after that, 
that Obama got the deal done. As I understand it, it was, I mean, there were criticisms of the deal. Israel was against it uh, till the very end, uh, you know, uh, at least Netanyahu was, notwithstanding various other people in the Israeli security establishment. Um, it was, they wanted it to be, I guess, longer, stronger. Uh, no, no, the Israelis were never in favor of any deal at all because they didn't want to see any enrichment taking place in Iran, period. Uh, knowing quite well that if the United States pushed for zero enrichment, the Iranians would never accept it and it would go on to a military confrontation. The Israeli interest here, frankly, is not primarily the nuclear weapons. The primary interest the Israelis had, and, and, and I'm saying this based on, and I describe it in my latest book, track two meetings with Israeli officials who spoke directly to Iranians. Their main concern is that if the Iranians and the United States struck a deal and the United States and Iran would start reducing their tensions, potentially resolving many of their other tensions, the Israelis asked themselves a very important question. If the United States and Iran actually uh, uh, doesn't become friends or allies, but they reduce their tensions, will there be a proportionate reduction in Israeli-Iranian tensions? And their conclusion, by and large, was no. And as a result, they feared that the United States would leave the region, would be disengaged from this issue, an issue that the United States wasn't engaged in at all until the Israelis really pushed hard to put it on their agenda. And then Israel would be, quote unquote, abandoned by the United States to face a hostile Iran in the region, but without America's full and automatic backing. It's much more of a geopolitical consideration than uh, the Iran having nuclear weapons. Not to say that they think that nuclear weapons in Iran in any way, shape or form would be a good thing, not at all. But they know quite well that Iran is much, much further away from actually having a nuclear weapon than the alarmist language, both coming out of Israel and the United States, have indicated. Yeah. Now, we should say they're closer to having weapons grade material than they were during the deal. But we'll get to that later. Uh, anyway, so you're saying the Israeli government actually wasn't willing to tolerate any level of enrichment, uranium enrichment as part of a civilian energy program. Now, you know, kind of pro Israel voices that were again in the U.S. that were against the deal were some of them were saying, well, we need a better deal, a longer deal, a stronger deal. But you're saying the Israeli government itself was just flat out explicitly against any deal that permitted anything. And it still is. I yeah. mean, uh, the Bennett government just made it clear two weeks ago that there shouldn't be any enrichment in Iran at all, which was very interesting because the Biden administration had invested quite a lot. In fact, surprisingly amount of time to try to find a common ground with the Israelis. Um, uh, fearing, assumingly, that if there was an agreement, they just didn't want to have the same fight that Obama had to have in Congress uh, uh, back in 2015. But uh, the statements coming out of the Israeli government, the Bennett government as of late, indicates that despite the fact that the Bennett government has reduced the, the decibel of their opposition, et cetera, on substance, there doesn't seem to be any shift whatsoever. Zero enrichment is still the objective that the Israeli government is pushing for. Now, they may be pushing for it because they know that it's not going to happen, but they think it's a good bargaining card. They think it's a good position to take to really press the United States. Mm -hmm. But uh, bottom line is that has been the official Israeli position uh, for quite some time. Mm -hmm. um, and we should say there are other voices in the, in the Middle East that are uh, more or less on Israel's side here, certainly Saudi Arabia. And, and Saudi Arabia, I think, they probably weren't so much of the picture early on, uh, but more and more, I think they have been influential. I mean, for example, they and some of the other Gulf states have done more in the way of 
funding think tanks, lobbying and, and so on uh, over the years. And so they're there. I, I don't want to uh, completely ignore their their role here. Um, no, I think their role also has been quite important. It's interesting, though, because you're quite right. Their role was not as prominent and it was not in the details. You know, when the JCPA was struck in 2015. That's the, the deal. Those are the letters signifying the Iran yes, the deal. Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Uh, the Israelis were very involved coming with proposals. For instance, the entire concept of breakout time is an Israeli concept. The idea of how long it takes from them making a decision to build a bomb to having the material avail- ready for that bomb. Not having a bomb, but the material. That's an Israeli concept that the U.S. side adopted and became a central um, 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 a variable for whether the deal was good or not. Uh, Obama was quite flexible on a lot of different variables, as long as they combined, always ensured that Iran was a minimum of 12 months away from uh, having that uh, available material. Now, that's from having weapons-grade material or having a bomb per se? No, having weapons-grade material. So having a bomb per se would be longer? Oh, that would probably be another two, three years, uh, which, frankly, if the JCPA was in place, would never happen anyways, because the inspections would be uh, are so effective that if the Iranians were to cheat and start building that type of material that is not consistent with the JCPOA, they would get caught within a week. And as a result, not only would there be 12 months time of reacting uh, to that, but there would be another two or three years before they actually would be able to have a bomb. That's why this was such a strong guarantee that the Iranians would not be able to build the bomb. And the reason Netanyahu was so dead set against it is not because it would pave the way to a bomb, but because it would pave the way for a new geopolitical balance in the Middle East, one in which the United States and Iran would not always be on the opposite side of each other, which could come at the expense of Israel's strategic position in the region and its maneuverability. Okay. And so it's the, the same concern that the Saudis have. You were talking, started talking about the Saudis. The Saudis didn't come and say, hey, you know, make sure that uh, they have a few less centrifuges or you know, some technical things. They don't have any knowledge about these different things because they don't have a nuclear weapons program themselves or a nuclear program. Their only concern was, why are you making a deal with Iran? That was it. That was the argument. Okay. And just to quickly uh, uh, capture the present moment before we return to the deal itself. Right now, I think the thinking is uh, breakout time, if you define it as having weapons-grade material, Israel would emphasize is months at this point, precisely because Trump abandoned the deal and uh, and Iran has carried enrichment to a higher level. Uh, but you would point out that uh, time before Iran could have an actual nuclear weapon would be more than months. Is yeah. that right? Uh, and U.S. intelligence is in agreement there that because of uh, the U.S. exit from the JCPOA and the activities that the Iranians have restarted in response to what the United States did, the breakout time is now roughly eight weeks. Okay. So the deal, uh, you know, again, it was of uh, finite duration. I, uh, I mean, at the same time, Iran was certainly, uh, uh, the idea was certainly that they would continue to comply even after its, its expiration, that they would continue to comply with uh, uh, the, the NPT. And, and I think the expectation was that once it expired, uh, you know, you you would hope to renegotiate it, but but we should say that that one thing that the deal entailed was, I, I think maybe unprecedentedly intrusive uh, monitoring to verify the deal. Right? I, I mean, 
so long as the deal was in in place, and this is one one reason the the abandonment of the deal by the U.S. is in one sense so mystifying, although once you understand the politics behind it, it's less so. But is that you could be pretty damn sure that that Iran was not violating the terms of the deal so long as we remained in the deal, and they and they weren't uh, violating terms of the. I mean, there were there were on-site inspections, twenty-four-seven monitoring equipment. It was really quite a thoroughgoing uh, enforcement mechanism. Uh, is that I, I assume that's your understanding too? Absolutely. I mean, this. If if your objective is to make sure that there's no nuclear weapon in Iran, there's absolutely nothing better than this deal. Now, were there things that could be improved upon, etc., uh, once the deal is expiring or halfway through it, if there was a renegotiation? Certainly. But if you want to renegotiate a deal, your best bet is to first adhere to the deal, have the credibility to be able to ask for renegotiation. If you're not making payments on your mortgage, yes, you can try to re, um, refinance, but you're not going to get a better deal if you didn't show that you actually were paying those mortgage payments in the first place. So the United States really under Trump undermined itself by doing this. And I want to talk a little bit more about that because there's such a uh, bizarre emphasis on where American credibility matters inside the blob and where it doesn't matter. But hopefully we can get the to blob that being uh, a derisive turn for the uh, the mainstream U.S. foreign policy establishment. Yeah. Um, but so really, the, the motivations for getting rid of the deal uh, has really very little to do with uh, it not being a good non-proliferation agreement. It's about all of these other things. And in fact, if you take a look at what the Trump administration said, they first started to try to claim that the Iranians were in violation of the deal. They were trying to force the IEA to make inspections in places that was no reason to make inspections on, and the IEA pushed back. So they abandoned the idea that there was a uh, non-proliferation violation on the Iranian side. Instead, they started to focus on saying, well, Iran hasn't changed its regional policies. Well, neither had the United States, because neither the U.S.'s nor Iran's or Saudi Arabia or Israel's or any other country's regional policies had anything to do with the JCPOA. So, but I think it was honest by them, because that is actually what the primary concern was, that this would lead to a situation that countries in the region that Trump was very eager to listen to, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Israel, were not happy with this. And the key reason they were not happy with it is because if you have a major reduction of tensions between the United States and Iran, a very, very critical component of why the United States has 19 bases in the region and 50,000 plus troops in the region would go away. And the United States would actually be able to easier find an exit out of the Middle East militarily, which is something that the Israelis, the Saudis, and the Emiratis are absolutely dead set against. Yeah. At the same time, if the U.S. did have stronger relations with Iran, you would think that the U.S. would try to use those to ease tensions between Iran and Israel, between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Uh, and, and I think, frankly, to think that the U.S. would just kind of quit thinking about the Middle East in that event and quit worrying about Israel uh, is to misunderstand American politics. But but I mean, isn't there a scenario where where better relations between the U.S. and Iran could could slowly ease tensions between Iran and and its neighbors? Absolutely. In fact, with Israel itself, take a look at the posture of Iran, its policies, its rhetoric. Once it 
started negotiating seriously the JCPOA. The Rouhani government knew very well that if they wanted to get to the JCPOA, they needed to make sure that they did not make America's political job more difficult. Having the type of Ahmadinejad rhetoric on Israel, uh, denying its right to exist, talking about the Holocaust, et cetera, are certainly ways to make it more difficult for the United States to be able to come to an agreement. They stopped doing all of that. It was interesting to see how hardline TV stations in Iran, state TV, were trying to bait Rouhani to go into uh, very inflammatory. And he was the president of Iran, a relative moderate. He's, he's not the ultimate political authority, but in the Iranian system, he has real power. He is elected. Uh, and he was the moderate under whom the deal was done. So go ahead. And he was himself a previous nuclear negotiator in the early 2000s. So he knew the file very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, a very important reason as to why Iran, uh, why the JCPA was struck was because he was elected and, and Javad Zarif, the Iranian foreign minister, became um, uh, the new lead negotiator. But Rouhani's language, uh, posture, what they did on Israel was dramatically different from that of what the Ahmadinejad government was doing, was precisely because the Iranians understood. If you're serious about getting a JCPA, you want the American signature on that piece of paper, you got to reduce tensions with Israel. Does it mean that the Iranians became, you know, uh, the Emiratis completely throwing the, this, uh, the Palestinians under the bus and, and just caved to whatever the Israelis wanted and forgot about the Occupation? No, certainly not. And that's not going to happen in any way, uh, uh, in an easy way anyways. But there was a reduction of tensions precisely because that is uh, almost a prerequisite for making a deal with Iran. Now, once the deal was there, there was opportunities to build on that. Those opportunities were never fully explored, partly because sanctions relief during the last two years of um, uh, the Obama administration didn't go that well, and the party didn't get to the point. And there was also a lot of Iran fatigue in the White House at the time. But more importantly, because Trump pulled out of the deal. So all of these things we're complaining about now happening in the region, but we actually had a pathway to resolve those diplomatically. We destroyed those pathways. And we touched on this a little bit, just to briefly crystallize whatever you think you know about Trump's motivation. I've always thought a little of it, at least, was just the fact that it was Obama's deal. You know, knowing Trump's psychology, I'm sure that uh, motivated him to abandon it. What else do you think was going on? Uh, I think that's a critical element. And I think he was very frustrated that the first uh, uh, group of secretaries he had around himself, Tillerson, Mattis, etc., were not in favor of pulling out of the deal because they understood, A, what would happen on the non-proliferation front, but they also understood what it would do to American credibility. Um, And so, uh, you know, even though he didn't want to have Bolton at first because Bolton was so uh, in love with war. Eventually, he went with Bolton because Bolton presented to him a strategy of how to get out of the JCPOA. So I think what you're saying there about his obsession with undoing everything Obama had done is very important for his personal motivation. Now, when we analyze Trump's policies, we have to be a little bit more explicit about these different things, because I don't think matters such as national interest and, and concerns of that nature uh, really register that often with Trump at all. It's mostly his own personal uh, considerations. And in that, some of these players were quite clever of understanding on how to manipulate him and how to play him. The Israelis, the Saudis, uh, the Emiratis were quite astute at that. And, and the Saudis provided a tremendous amount of financing and so bought more weapons from the United States. I um, mean, it's not a coincidence that the first country Trump visits, breaking with all tradition, is Saudi Arabia. 
whereas it always either has been Mexico or Canada. Uh, so I think they, they have their own motivations that were quite different from that of Trump. I don't think Trump wanted war. I actually don't think he actually wanted war, but he wanted to milk the Saudis for as much as he could. Uh, it was no problem for him to walk out of the deal. It benefited him because it undid what Obama had done. But actually going full way towards war was not his objective, but that was the objective of the others. And they understood very well that if the deal had been scrapped, the United States would be much closer to war than it otherwise would have been. And they were deeply disappointed when the United States didn't go to war with Iran after the Iranians shut down an American drone uh, in what they say was in their airspace. Uh, and uh, Trump had ordered attacks on Iran and then called them off at the last minute. Those countries wanted it to happen at that time. And I think part of what we're seeing right now with a significant degree of regional diplomacy taking place. The Emiratis are trying to make friends with the Iranians. You know, uh, their leader has gone off to Turkey. You see uh, a reduction of tensions between Saudi Arabia and Qatar, between Turkey and Egypt, is largely because these countries have now come to the conclusion that despite the fact that the U.S. still has a large number of troops in the region, the U.S.'s commitment to actually fighting wars in the Middle East are more or less gone. And as a result, they have to find ways to reduce their tensions on their own rather than seeking to manipulate American military power for their own ends and hiding behind American military power. So this could be a case where, uh, you know, superpower sponsorship of, of regional players actually makes them more militant and aggressive. And once they start thinking they may not have such reliable superpower support, they can be motivated to actually uh, work things out and, and, and negotiate. I certainly think that is what has happened in this case. I'm not saying that is what happens all the time, but in this specific case in the Middle East, it has. And I think it's partly because of how we have handled it. We have given the Saudis an absolute green light. We cannot be uh, particularly surprised that MBS then goes and kidnaps the prime minister of Lebanon. I mean, who does that these days? But he did it. And he didn't even get a slap on his wrist. Uh, the Yemen war was something that the U.S. at the end of the day green-lighted because they were afraid that if they didn't, uh, the Saudis would have become even more problematic on the JCPOA front. So the Saudis have grown accustomed to having a standing green light, and that has fueled their recklessness. They are walking it back right now. The Saudis and the Iranians are having a secret dialogue, not so secret any longer in Iraq, in which they're trying to mend fences because the Saudis now know they cannot rely on the United States to fight Iran for them. So as long as they thought that they could, the, the option of diplomacy was suboptimal to the option of getting the United States to fight their wars for them. Okay, so Trump abandons a deal. Uh, Biden uh, takes over. And I think a lot of us were puzzled as to why Biden wasn't more proactive from the beginning and Blinken and the whole team about getting the deal restored. There was this weird thing where the U.S. was demanding that Iran make some overture before it would. Uh, reciprocate. And I thought, wait a second, we're the ones who abandoned the deal. Why are we asking them to get on their knees? I, I didn't understand what was going on. I wasn't paying that much attention. Maybe you can help clarify things. What What's your take on, on what happened in the opening months of the Biden administration? I think the Biden administration committed a series of very significant mistakes early on. Um, one was that we should have recognized that because we pulled out we had to do something to restore our credibility. Just issuing statements saying America is back does nothing 
to restore that credibility. And I'm not just talking about in Iran. Same thing is true in Europe and elsewhere. We didn't do that. We thought that by just, you know, we assumed that everyone else would think that Trump is an aberration and that we didn't have to do anything to restore confidence and trust when we were the ones who pulled out. I think that was a huge mistake. The language that came out of the uh, Biden administration in the early weeks was, you know, language such as Iran knows what it must do uh, and, and rather threatening language, uh, which is really extremely unconstructive, particularly when it's so clear that we were in the wrong. And the Biden administration officials prior to go into the White House were all on the record saying that we were wrong. We're all on the record saying that uh, maximum pressure sanctions were counterproductive. We're all on the record saying that increasing sanctions at a time of COVID is just cruel and, and Trump should end that right away. 11 months into the Biden administration, it's not been ended yet. So I think that was a mistake. We also wasted a lot of time. Uh, part of it was because we're trying to come to some sort of accommodation and understanding with the Israelis and, and the Saudis and the Emiratis and do all of those different consultations. I think we would have been better off to essentially just do an executive order as Biden did on 50 other issues on day one, just go back into the deal, sort out the issues uh, and details later. And then by being back in the deal, both have regained some moral status, but also regained the ability to be able to uh, uh, trigger uh, snapback sanctions on the Iranians if the Iranians are not playing ball. Instead, we went for these lengthy negotiations in which the Iranians have not been particularly constructive or helpful. 11 months has passed, and now we're looking at a very likely collapse of the JCPA altogether. Right. And now we have uh, a less moderate president than, than the president who, uh, Iranian president, I mean, who negotiated the deal. And again, the ultimate political authority is the supreme leader, isn't the president, but the president matters. And I, I think the, the conventional wisdom is that, uh, the combination of Trump's abandoning the deal and then Biden's not uh, promptly restoring it uh, undermined the the credibility and eroded the political capital capital of moderates within Iran, because after all, there had been tension about the deal in Iran to begin with. They, they have their uh, extremists who had been against the deal. And, and 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 I'm sure some of them said, no, you can't trust the U.S. Well, when it turned out you couldn't trust the U.S., uh, their stock rose. The moderates uh, stock declined. And uh, I assume that's one reason um, that it is a very critical reason. And then, by the way, let me also say um, it's very important that you raise the elections in Iran, because, again, elections in Iran was not an unpredictable event. We knew that elections were going to happen. Uh, Biden officials who are now part of the negotiating team were on the record before going into office saying that the window for restoring diplomacy is very short because we got to get it done before the Iranian elections. Mm -hmm. uh, yet that was not how it was acted upon in my assessment. Um, and uh, the elections result, I think, uh, to a very large extent, cannot be disconnected from what happened in the JCPOA and the U.S.'s pullout. Uh, the hardliners had for years been making the argument that the JCPOA was something that Iran was tricked into, uh, and they were very uh, focused on not blaming Trump, but rather blaming Rouhani. The argument is not that Trump is innocent here, but rather that we all knew that Trump would do this. We all knew that the United States would betray the agreement. So why did Rouhani not have a plan B? Why did he put all of his eggs 
in the JCPOA and trusting the United States when it's so obvious to everyone in Iran that that's their argument that you can't trust the United States. So they shift the blame to Rouhani, bash him for years. The economy tanks because of maximum pressure uh, sanctions, and they are quite astute at shifting that blame onto Rouhani, not because Trump is innocent, but because you should have known that the United States should have done this, would have done this. And they use this argument to then say, we'll come back in, we'll restore the JCPOA. We're not against diplomacy, but we're going to have plan Bs. We're going to have plan Cs. We're not going to trust the United States. We're not just going to put all our eggs in that basket. And that's exactly what we're seeing. They're doing much more investment in relations with Russia and China, even with regional states. They're even playing down the importance of the JCPOA, saying that it's not their top priority. I don't think that's correct, or it shouldn't be correct. But that's part of the strategy of saying that um, they're going to be dealing with this very, very differently. And I can go into the details of the election numbers, because what really happened in the elections is not that uh, Raisi managed to get more votes. He got roughly 2 million more votes than he got four years ago when he ran unsuccessfully against Rouhani. The real difference is that the moderates and reformists who scored roughly 24, 25 million votes in 2017 only got 4 million votes this time, or actually less than that, because they stayed home. The vast majority of people who were supporting of Rouhani didn't vote this time around. And they didn't vote partly because there was no candidate that they were excited about, but also because the argument of the hardliners had not convinced them that Raisi or the hardliners were right, but it had been sufficient to kill the idea that this type of approach of negotiating with the United States that Rouhani had really used as his platform had lost any credibility. And that's a real problem because that's part of the reason why the hardline position of the Iranians in the negotiations today is not one that lacks popular support. Okay. So here we are, uh, for whatever reason, uh, I, I, uh, I, I gather the talks may resume this week or something, um, but uh, I haven't heard many people. They're resuming on Thursday. Resuming on Thursday. What, what do you think is, what's the range of realistic possibilities as an outcome? It's, uh, first of all, I think what's, what the Iranians did in this last round is, is clearly quite problematic. Uh, they came in with proposals on the nuclear side of it that really walked back what had uh, the progress that had been made before and, and stunned the negotiators in Washington, the United States, and potentially also in Russia. We will actually see that. The Iranians are meeting with the Russians, and there's some rumblings that there's irritation there as well, and potentially with the Chinese as well. On the sanctions front, apparently, they were not as aggressive um, uh, in changing their positions. But it, it's a real problem right now. And I think the this next round is going to be quite critical to see whether there is enough of an assessment on all sides that there is a path forward. If there isn't, you're likely going to see the Europeans trigger uh, snapback sanctions in the UN. Um, and we're going to go back to a situation in which uh, the two sides are just going to try to pressure each other. I'm very skeptical of that strategy because the Iranians have advanced their nuclear program tremendously. Biden never lifted the Trump sanction. And there's very few sanctions beyond that that he really can impose. But more importantly, the Biden team themselves are on the record, all of them, saying that that strategy doesn't work. So are they going to go back to a strategy that they have argued quite effectively is ineffective and, and counterproductive? 
Um, it's not a great position. I, I do wonder if perhaps a third option is emerging this time around. I don't think it existed before. I write about it for MBC or MSNBC earlier this week. I, I want to be very clear. I'm not arguing for this outcome. I think it's a very bad outcome. But I do wonder if it might exist now in a way that it didn't before, which is that the JCP more or less died. But all sides pretend that it or some variation of diplomacy is still alive in order to be able to avoid the worst outcome, which is a military confrontation, because neither side has appetite for it. That option, the pretending that it's alive, you know, think about the Oslo process and the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. The West has been quite effective in pretending that that is alive for 30 or so years now. So um, clearly the capacity of pretense exists. And the reason I think that may end up being the case this time around is because the cost politically for the type of compromises that are needed from all sides to make a deal seems to be deemed to be too high. Uh, on the U.S. side, you know, they don't want to agree to some of the demands that the Iranians are making about making sure that the sanctions relief is actually credible and durable. Yeah, I mean, they're asking the U.S. to guarantee that we will re- we will uh, keep the, the sanctions, uh, any the sanctions we rescind, rescinded beyond the end of the current uh, presidential term. Right. Which, as a practical matter in American politics, is not doable. Right. Uh, yes. and No. I mean, what they're talking about is assurances and mechanisms. So it's not guaranteed. They actually stopped using the word guarantee because I think they understood that that is more difficult. But I do want to say one thing on this point. Uh, I'm stunned to see how quickly we have come to the consensus that promising anything beyond one administration is just nothing America can do. Mm-hmm. Just remember that when Mattis was testifying in Congress for his, um, his hearings to see whether he would be uh, cleared as Secretary of Defense, and he was asked about this issue, he said, America is a country that respects its signature. So we went from that to suddenly saying, there's no way we can uh, uh, adhere to what one administration is doing and make sure that the next one adheres to it as well. I, I, I think the, the acceptance of the erosion of American credibility on making agreements, not about whether we will bomb a country, that credibility of whether we will stick to our word when it comes to positive agreements, uh, I'm really stunned to see how little concern there is in the Washington policy establishment for our erosion of credibility there. Whereas there is this predictable freak out every time we had indicated that we would take military action and then we don't. Then we think it's really dangerous. If we don't do this in Ukraine, then China is going to take Taiwan. But the fact that we are not only reneging on these agreements, but then also saying that because we're a democracy, we cannot make an agreement that goes beyond this, the term of this administration, or at least make it legally binding. I, I find that really shocking. That's the worst argument for a democracy ever. It's not an argument we should be making. It's yeah. an argument that dictators should be doing against, making against democracy. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's a case where America's political polarization, you know, hurts it on the international stage, I think. So, um, okay, so uh, you said, I think, that Iran is taking a tougher line than previously on the nuclear stuff. I mean, so on the sanctions, they are asking for mechanisms of, of assurance that I gather we're not willing to provide. But but that aside, uh, you're saying in terms of what they're willing to do, are, are they saying they won't go back to the status quo ante on the nuclear uh, enrichment front or what? My understanding, and, and I think, you know, we, we have to be quite happy that all sides are kind of respecting not 
divulging exactly what is happening inside the negotiations. But the degree to which um, I've managed to gather information is more that when it comes to what they will do to go back to the status quo ante, um, uh, by and large, because I assume that there's some changes there as well, mindful of the fact that they have more advanced research now, it's not entirely clear how that is walked back. But I think it's that they want to time that. They don't want to go back in one move and just get rid of all of their LEU, get rid of all of their centrifuges. That's, that's light-enriched uranium? Yeah, uh, yeah, they have actually, unfortunately, up to 60% enriched uranium. They don't want to give up all of that in one step for the U.S. to remove all sanctions in one step. And their argument is when the U.S. removes the sanctions, it doesn't mean that Iran gets the economic benefit. In fact, we have European officials, the former ambassador of France to the U.N. and to the U.S., uh, just tweeted the other day that no European company is going to go back into Iran, even with a deal being restored, because what they're concerned about is not the restoration of the deal. They're concerned about the stability of the sanctions relief. So they're looking at what happens in the United States in 2024. Will there be a Republican president or a Democratic president? They're not going to go into Iran for two years and then pay the price again for having to be kicked out because of U.S. sanctions. Mm -hmm. So he says that no one will go in and the Iranians know it. And that's why they're making these um, uh, these demands of having some form of assurances. And it seems to me, and this is just a speculation, that because the demand for uh, uh, mechanism and assurances have not worked, then they say, well, in that case, the nuclear walk back has to be phased out to make sure that it's only progressing as long as the sanctions relief actually delivers economic benefit, not just something that is on paper. Okay. So you're hoping there will be some kind of uh, pretense of ongoing negotiations no, after no, no, this. No, no, no. no let me no, is, that, is that the wrong word? <laughs> I, I don't I don't hope. I hope that there is a deal. Okay. I'm just saying you think, and you think that's still possible, a meaningful deal? I still think it's possible. It absolutely still is possible. It's a it's a matter of um uh, political will and flexibility at this point, as it was last time as well. I fear, though, that that will does not exist because map situation has changed. The pathway to a war may not be as clear as before either because the pretense options exist. Uh, and the wild card there, of course, is Israel. And under Netanyahu and the aggressive posture that he took, it, it was quite clear that uh, if there wasn't a deal, the United States would take military action because it was better for the U.S. to take military action than for the U.S. to wait for Israel to do it and then get dragged into war, of which the timing was not America's choosing. You think that Today, was the case even under Obama, that, that yes, the U.S. Yes, would have taken I do the believe so. But I don't believe that that is the case as clear cut now. I mean, Biden left Afghanistan and then he stated falsely that this is the first time in 20 or so years that we're not at war. For him to do that, want to shift his focus to falsely in the sense that there were wars that persisted. Oh, we're we're still engaging wars. wars. Okay. Yeah, of sure. course. I, mean, I, I yeah. strongly support what he did on Afghanistan. Uh, I think it was the right thing. Sure, implementation had significant challenges, but the decision itself was the right one. Um, and he wants to uh, make sure that the United States is not as involved militarily in the Middle East and, you know, for reasons of shifting focus to Asia, et cetera. In the midst of that, starting a war with Iran. I, I just don't see that being strategically wise. I also don't think that that will play out particularly well for him electorally. I can definitely see Trump coming out, uh, swinging and saying, four years under Trump, uh, no new wars, uh, two years out of Biden, and we have one more war. 
So, and, and that will play with uh, the electorate. We know quite well that the electorate mm -hmm. is, is very fatigued with all of these different wars. So because of this, I think that there might be a sense that there's a different option, which is that the deal is more or less dead, but everyone pretends that it's still alive in hope that over time, other opportunities will emerge for the two sides to come back into negotiations. Uh, this, of course, necessitates that the Israelis also calculate that it's better for them not to uh, take military action. And they may draw that conclusion because the Iranians will likely not expand their programs as aggressively if there isn't a prospect for a negotiation. What they're doing right now is a negotiation strategy. If they were to do all of that without negotiations, that's a very different proposition. Mm -hmm. That is something that would significantly increase the risk of war, which I don't think is what they want to trigger. So you're saying they're increasing the level of, uh, you know, enrichment of, of uranium has been in the context of wanting to store up more bargaining chips, maybe among other things. Uh, but they feel in any event secure so long as there are negotiations that they're not going to get bombed tomorrow. But if negotiations uh, broke up, they would they would be more careful about provoking Israel. But 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 a related a, a related question is, can Israel have the assurance that Iran is, in fact, not enriching uranium more. I mean, I gather that not all of the monitoring stuff is in place that was in place under the deal, right? Yeah, I mean, right now we don't have the same insight into the program as we did before, which is, again, thanks to Trump and thanks to the Saudis and the Israelis and everyone else who pushed them to do this. So it will be a much more dangerous situation, particularly if one of the measures Iran takes, if the United States and Europeans reimpose UN sanctions is to kick out all the inspectors. And that would be a very dangerous situation. So even though I hear that the snapback option is being considered right now, I think that's a very, very heavy step because that will mean that we will lose insight into what's going on. And that will definitely put the sides back on a track towards. So that's why I'm saying I, I don't see an appetite for that type of a crisis anywhere right now. Uh, the potential wild card is Israel. So I do wonder if there is a not a particularly stable, but more stable than before option in which essentially there's a pretense that the deal is alive. Neither side takes any dramatic measures. The Israelis will continue to sabotage Iran's program, but perhaps they will do less spectacular attacks in order to give the Iranians the ability to deny that anything happened at all. And it will be an unstable, but not totally unstable situation for the remainder of the Biden term. Uh, again, I'm not arguing for it. I don't think it's good. But I think before we were in a situation in which if it collapsed, there was a much higher risk of war. This time around, I think the situation looks slightly different. OK. And did I understand you say th there's in a way two sets of sanctions? There are the, the sanctions that Trump reinstated, which included some unilateral U.S. sanctions, although I think the U.S. has managed to kind of strong arm some some countries into into respecting various sanctions. But is there a whole nother significant uh, bunch of sanctions that are more multilateral and have not been reimposed and, and Iran has an incentive to keep them from being reimposed? The UN sanctions can be reimposed through the, um, uh, and, and a lot of countries saw those sanctions as the legal justification for themselves to go forward with their own unilateral sanctions. Mm -hmm. Trump never managed to trigger uh, uh, snapback. So instead of what he did- These, these are sanctions that were going to automatically snap back under the terms of the deal if Iran did X, exactly. Y, and Z, and they haven't exactly. snapped back. 
But Trump never managed to do so because he was foolish enough to leave the deal. Only parties to the deal can trigger snapback. <laughs> Trump left. Uh, and as a result, he couldn't. He made the argument in the uh, Security Council that even though he's not a participant, because he's participating in this meeting, he is a participant. And everyone essentially laughed at him. I think the only country that voted with him, uh, with the United States, was the Dominican Republican. The Republican, we can probably figure out what that is the case. Um, but now, uh, the Europeans could. They refused to do it before. Now they potentially will. I still think we're, you know, it would be an extremely dangerous escalation. But if those sanctions go back in, I'm not so sure what the economic impact on Iran would be because Trump managed to figure it out without those sanctions. He just scared the daylights out of all international companies. And the only ones that are still there or, or in a significant way are the Chinese and the Russians. So I, I'm not so sure um, if, uh, even if with a snapback, if the Chinese will completely leave uh, the Iranian market. Uh, so I'm not saying that it wouldn't make it worse, but if we take a look at how much more economic pressure the United States through the UN, Europe, et cetera, could put on Iran and how much more the Iranians could escalate their nuclear program, the potential for escalation on the Iranian side is far greater than what it is on the sanctions front. Okay. So it sounds like the good news is you think that the likelihood of Israel out and out attacking Iran, I mean, Israel does in effect attack Iran in in small and covert ways, and it kills people in Iran. And, and But uh, a flat-out attack of Iran is less likely, uh, even in the collapse of a deal, than it would have been under, under Netanyahu and certainly under Netanyahu and Trump, under that combination. Yeah, and I want to be clear. I'm not saying it's unlikely. I'm not saying that it's uh, the risk is worth it in any way, shape, or form. I'm just saying that before we were in a situation in which Things have really come to a point in which if there wasn't a deal, the risk of war was very, very clear cut. This time around, I'm not as certain of that being the case. I can see um, a political will for that pretense game uh, going on for a period of time, uh, not for a very long period of time. So, um, And that may also be part of the reason why the same sense of urgency of actually doing the type of compromises that are needed is not there. So for instance, part of the reason why Obama succeeded in the negotiations, the narrative in Washington is because of the sanctions on Iran. What really happened uh, is that in the secret negotiations in Oman, the United States in January uh, of 2013 decided that they would go back to the negotiations in Oman and for the first time ever offer the Iranians acceptance under specific uh, considerations, enrichment on Iran. This was the Iranian red line. It was a card Obama had planned to play at the end of the negotiation. Now, instead, he played it at the very beginning of the negotiations to get negotiations. And the reason for it was in January 2013, the U.S. realized that Iran's breakout time, which had been 12 months a year earlier, had shrunk to roughly 8 to 12 weeks, where we are today. And they realized that as much sanctions he had put on Iran, he could not sanction Iran into capitulation faster than Iran could escalate the nuclear program towards a nuclear fait accompli. So very soon, the United States will be faced with only two options, either accept Iran as a nuclear power or go to war, unless flexibility was shown in the negotiations. And that's what broke the whole thing. Once the U.S. showed that flexibility, that elicited flexibility from the Iranian side as well. It wasn't the pressure. 
Okay. Now, we, we mentioned uh, the fact that Iran has been engaged in attacks. Uh, I, I mean, Israel has been engaged in attacks on Iran. Uh, in Iran, per se, assassinating nuclear scientists, uh, sabotaging equipment, not to mention attacks on uh, both Iranian uh, Iranian proxies and Iranian uh, troops who are stationed in Syria. So there's been, uh, you know, uh, enough uh, enough of that kind of thing that you would worry about it uh, getting out of hand. I, I, there's a little bit of an irony to me, which is that a lot of uh, Israel's um, concern about all this is ostensibly motivated by the fear that if Iran had a nuclear weapon, they would attack Israel, which would, of course, be suicidal. They would be wiped out. Israel is a nuclear power. I don't power. think that is their concern. But, but the funny thing is that in this, what the so-called shadow war, uh, Iran consistently exercises exactly the kind of restraint that suggests sanity on their part. In other words, they're not, yeah. they're yeah. clearly not suicidal. They're very kind of careful, uh, they, 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 they calibrate their use of force very carefully, even in response to the Soleimani assassination, they managed to do a display of force, but give the U.S. in effect, as I understand it, a heads up so they could move their troops and so they could, Iran could blow up all these, these barracks with, with precision guided missiles, but no, but they wouldn't start a war. Um, there's an interesting thing on this front uh, that, that, that I heard the other day uh, in terms of, you know, uh, Iran's, in terms of the American perception of Iran's uh, rationality, that may be, be be part of what you described as kind of a shift in how much uh, Israel can count on American support for Israeli military action. And it was this, it was uh, Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. I heard her saying, you know, if Iran had a nuclear bomb, wouldn't be the end of the world. It would be better than a war. Now, I don't know what her history is. I don't know much about her, but I do know the American Enterprise Institute's history. And I know that five, six, seven years ago, I don't think you would have expected to hear that from anybody at AEI. It's been hawkish, uh, kind of neoconish. And that struck me as interesting. And I wonder if you think that signifies a kind of shift, some shift in thinking, you know, in the American foreign policy establishment, uh, perhaps itself reflecting, uh, uh, you know, Biden's own views about how involved in the Middle East, in a Middle Eastern war, the U.S. should or shouldn't get. What, yep. what do you, does that make sense to you? It does. And it's preceded by comments in Israeli media, which are perhaps even more shocking. People like Ehud Barak, former prime minister, former defense minister, uh, making the case that perhaps Israel will be forced to live with an Iranian nuclear bomb. Now, the Israelis, going back to what you said about Iranian rationale, the, the problem with the Israelis have is precisely that, is that Iran isn't suicidal. It's actually calibrating its use of force very carefully and that it's playing a very, very clever long-term game. Um, and the Israelis know very well that they know how to deter Iran. There's been effective deterrence between Israel and, and Hezbollah for quite some time. It breaks down every once in a while, but they know how to how to um, uh, deal with each other. And the Israelis also know that the Iranians know that Israel has several nuclear submarines, German Dolphin submarines that are nuclear equipped. If Israel has a second strike capability, Iran does not. If Iran ever were to be so stupid to attack Israel with nuclear weapons, Iran itself would be destroyed. They know it, that is not their concern. Their concern is that if Iran becomes nuclear, and the way it would shift the balance of power, eventually the United States would have to come to terms with it. And 
and the balance in the region uh, would shift in a way that they would find highly problematic because the Israelis, keep in mind, this is very important, are very different from the way other countries calculate risk. Uh, Israel's uh, uh, threat calculation, the regular threat calculation is essentially threat uh, capability times intent. The Israelis assume that intent to destroy Israel is a constant. So it's only about capability. So to be able to survive, Israel has to dominate. That domination will come to an end if the balance shifts, whether Iran is nuclear or whether Iran is free from sanctions. Part of the reason I think the Israelis may be content with this dormant uh, coma situation of the JCPOA is because at a minimum, the United States will continue to sanction Iran. And the sanctions will be very crippling and will ensure that Iran does not live up to its full potential. It will balance, it will contain Iran through the sanctions. That I think some Israelis are now coming to the conclusion of is preferable to a very risky war, particularly when it's so clear the United States does not have the appetite for it. Okay, final question. Uh, again, the, you know, the, the context of this uh, is that Israel has a nuclear weapon, is not part of the non-proliferation treaty. Uh, Iran is part of the non-proliferation treaty uh, and hasn't developed a nuclear weapon. Now, the NPT allows the state to leave it with, I don't know, six months notice or something. So in principle, Iran could say we're leaving the NPT, develop nuclear weapons, at which point they would have exactly the same status in international law that Israel have, that would have. They would not be in the NPT. They would have nuclear weapons. Um, the uh, I've always wondered, with that as backdrop, why doesn't, it seems to me it would have been a public uh, relations, uh, like a smart thing to do PR-wise, for Iran to say, come into these latest talks and just make a big show of saying, we have an announcement. We are willing to be monitored like intrusively for 100 years. If Israel will do the same, we want a nuclear-free Middle East. Now, obviously, Israel would say no, but I don't understand why Iran doesn't rhetorically make a bigger deal of that. It's, it's very interesting. They don't. I don't know exactly why they're not. There was a moment once the deal was struck in which the Iranians now then started to say, OK, now that Iran has signed the J JCPOA, Israel needs to do the same. Um, they didn't pursue it very far. I think it was a statement or two and they, they left it alone. Uh, they may, that may be their calculation that, you know, they don't want to escalate that much with the Israelis because, I mean, that would um, that would have reignited a fight at a moment where perhaps they were looking forward to having some degree of calm. But I think it is an ex excellent question, and it's, it's uh, perhaps a bit surprising that they have it. OK, anything else you want to say? I know you 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 got to go right about now. Any 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 concluding remarks? Oh, I think this was a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, well, thanks for taking the time, Trita. My I pleasure. Hope to, hope My to pleasure. talk to you down the road.